1: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
2: I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Hi, Sarah. Today, I'm so excited that we were able to get my friend Dan Oates to the show because when I was, you know, a baby trying to figure out how to deal with mass shootings, Dan had already dealt with, you know, one of the worst in the country and he's light years ahead of me, not in age, but light years ahead of me in experience. Hi, Dan.
1: Hey, nice to see you. Um, Dan Oates, uh, recently retired law enforcement, uh 40 years in the business, 18, almost 19 as a police chief. I grew up in the... NYPD. I started in 1980 and left in 2001, a couple weeks before 9-11 to become police chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was inspired by my time in the NYPD and working for so great police commissioners and decided I wanted to be a police chief and and Ann Arbor would have me. So I went to Ann Arbor right before 9-11. I was there for four and a half years. From there, um, I went to Aurora, Colorado, where I was the chief for eight and a half years. And 10 years ago, July 20th, 2012, we had the theater shooting. And ours at the time was the largest mass shooting in U.S. history with the most casualties. certainly people killed or wounded. Obviously, it's been eclipsed by a number of mass shootings since. So I did eight and a half years in Aurora. Uh, led the organization in the city through that crisis. And then I went to... Miami Beach, where I was a chief for five years, and I thought I had ended my career in July of 19 when I retired. But I recently returned to Aurora May and in almost eight months as the interim police chief back in Aurora. And so I retired again in December 2022. And now I'm figuring out what to do next.
2: Maybe NYPD will call you and ask you to be the chief.
1: Yeah. That I wouldn't say no to, but that's not going to happen.
2: All of that experience in Ann Arbor in New York took you to Aurora. And then how long had you been in Aurora?
1: I was there six and a half years when a theater should occur. I was, you know, well ensconced. Uh, in fact, I was probably even thinking about maybe I should be you know, exploring moving on, you know, there's, there's a shelf life to being effective police chief and it's probably around five or six years. So I was at that point where the theater shooting happened. Now, interestingly enough, I had the year before the shooting, uh, based on what was going on in the world, I had said to my training staff, you know, we really ought to do a full day of training on active shooting, And I'd like you to put something together and the training staff did a great job. We had 126 people working the night at the theater shoot. And I ended up interviewing each one of those folks individually for about half an hour to an hour and talking about what they had been through. And every one of them said, you know, that training we had done in the prior year was really, really important to my mindset when this thing went on, including the folks who went into the theater, you know, we had about 30 victims who were so badly shot and injured that they couldn't get up and run out of the theater. And there's no whole notion of where you're going to have to step over the dead, You're going to have to step over the wounded and ignore them for a period of time until you're absolutely certain the threat has been eliminated. And they said, everyone said that was a really important message from our training that I followed is, you know, clear the theater first, then go back and help the wounded.
2: Could you just describe for our listeners, you know, give them a thumbnail about what happened?
1: So, again, it was an earlier time where these kinds of incidents were relatively rare. It was 1230, in the morning. It was a Thursday night into Friday morning. It was the premiere of a new Batman movie starring, uh, well, what's his name? Kristen Bale. Jesus, the name of the movie's blanking on me. Was
2: this Batman uh, Returns?
1: Yeah, something like that. And at the time, the movie industry, literally, the premieres happened at midnight because the rules were the movie could only be shown on a Friday. So in order to create the aura around the movie, they would have midnight showings of a brand new premiere. And this show was showing, I think, four streets in a sixteen screen theater in the center of Aurora, less than half a mile from police headquarters. And it was an event. Many of the people who showed up, you know, were were wearing costumes or whenever regalia, because they were big fans of Batman and where the shooting occurred it was in theater nine. Place was packed, about 350 in that theater. There was an adjoining street. Theater eight and several of those got wounded by rounds that penetrated the wall. The suspect was a socially maladjusted young man in his 20s, apparently highly educated, on a scholarship to go to the University of Colorado, PhD program in neuroscience. And he had completed his first year and had decided to drop out. Our event occurs in July, beginning in March. He starts seeking uh, psychiatric care from uh, a psychiatrist team at the University of Colorado because of mental health issues he was dealing with. And beginning in May, he begins to buy weaponry, all legally, tons and tons of ammunition. Uh, when he goes into the theater, he is carrying a shotgun. He's carrying an AR-15, multiple magazines, including a 100-round drum magazine, and he's carrying a pistol, a Glock. 9 millimeter, And he scoped out the place in advance. You have evidence of that. His operation was he came in and stood very close. When the movie started, or the lights went down and they started, you know, all the previews and stuff, he went out an exit door to the back of the theater, put a stopper in the door so he could get back in, sit it up, head to toe in body armor, including a gas mask, and brought inside two long guns, the shotgun and the AR, uh, and the handgun, he threw a gas canister into the theater, um, uh, that, uh, not only was gas, but was pepper spray type irritant. And then he started shooting. And, uh, in the end, uh, make a long story short, he fired six shotgun rounds, 65 AR rounds before his weapon jammed, and then five or six handgun rounds, uh, killed 12 people, wounded 58 people. Cops were there within 90 seconds. By the time they entered the theater, he was going out the back door. He was immediately apprehended. And then the story of Aurora becomes the rescue of those 30 terribly, terribly wounded people. The cops can't get paramedics to where the wounded are in the confusion of that event. And a decision is made by a young sergeant about eight minutes in, put these folks in patrol cars and immediately transport them to the nearest hospitals. We had the advantage that there were three world-class hospitals, one within a mile, two within three miles. And the cops very smartly divvied up where they were sending people and transported 27 crazily important people by patrol car. Rather than by ambulance, and all 27 that the cops transported live. Some of them with absolutely horrific injuries. One's a quadriplegic. Another woman uh, lost a baby. She was pregnant, and she's paralyzed from the waist down. There were several amputations. You know, so almost certainly some of those 27, you know, perhaps 10 or so would have died but for those immediate decisions by those officers at transport. And two things have changed as a result of Aurora. One is, that is an option for police now. And if you remember in the Pulse shooting, which was, I think, maybe 16, I don't know what year. Mm-hmm. Yep, 16. You literally see videos of the cops putting folks in the back of pickup trucks and driving them to the hospital.
2: It really changed the attitude for law enforcement about how to respond. It wasn't so segmented that, you show up at the scene, you're there in two minutes, you wait for 15 minutes for an ambulance to show up, you wait for 15 or 20 minutes for them to load somebody into an ambulance and take them to the hospital. And that was really the way the medical community wanted us to take care of people who were injured at a scene. But now I think that we recognize that law enforcement can work with fire and civilians can transport. At Pulse nightclub, there were civilians transporting all kinds of injured people to the hospitals.
1: That, and that oh, saves lives. And police and paramedics, be they fire departments or whatever, train together to anticipate this kind of event and how to get the paramedics urgently to, we'll call it the warm zone, the place where the wounded are, but we believe we could protect the paramedics and get them to them to begin treatment immediately. And there's a sense of urgency now within the professions to marry out the wounded with paramedics. In
2: retrospect, were there behaviors of concern that you recall about this shooter that maybe
1: others had seen? Well, I'll answer it this way. I left Aurora before the the true case preparation for his trial. And by the way, Aurora was also rare, Sarah. Up at that point, most of these active shooters did not survive the incident. Mm -hmm. So uh, our suspect was one of the first high-profile incidents where we had a live defendant to convict. So the evidence against him was overwhelming. And it was obvious his only defense was going to be that he was going to pursue an insanity defense, that he was not responsible for his actions. Uh, the way you overcome that defense in the United States is you have to prove that the defendant knew right from wrong and was aware of the consequences of his actions. So how do you prove that as investigators? And by the way, if you're an agency that goes through this, the number one thing you have to do after you care for the victims is you have to deliver a conviction. I mean, it's absolutely essential that you deliver some sort of justice for the families. And the, and the one thing you control is the investigation. So there's going to be a power word case in Colorado. So when we made the case against the suspect was by going back six months and a year, speaking to everyone that he had dealt with and looking at his entire digital profile, his online history and those kinds of things. And we discovered that he had, in fact, talked about engaging in this kind of behavior and it actually sent things like will you visit me in prison to some of the folks that he was associated with. to
2: other people he wow. said those things to other people
1: yeah and wow. and all of this became the evidence to defeat the insanity defense now the other element to this story is that he has sought out psychiatric help and at one point he had actually told his psychiatrist with the University of Colorado, that he was having fantasies about killing lots of people and that he was enjoying them. There was a point at which that psychiatrist mobilized, I don't know what they call it, the red team or something, uh, a function at the University of Colorado. She also reached out to the University of Colorado, the small police department on campus, and told an officer about this and ask the officer to look into the student's criminal history. This is before the event. You no, know, this is about a month or so or six weeks before the event. And the professional convenes her psychiatric team. The student has told them that he is withdrawing from the program and leaving school and returning home to California where he came from a stable home. So she has that information. The officer checks, and he has no criminal history and no history of violence, et cetera, et cetera. So for whatever reason, the university team decided that since he was returning home to California, there was no reason to do a mandatory mental health hold and have him checked into a mental health facility under Colorado law, uh, you know, against his will if necessary. Hey, wait,
2: Dan, so, so time out. Mandatory mental health hold. If they had done a mandatory mental health hold under federal law, he wouldn't have been able to buy any weapons if it had been reported.
1: Yes. But, you know, then there's a whole other issue in the American healthcare system. What happens to someone when they're evaluated in one of these things? But at any rate, the police officer is told by the medical or psychiatrist, we don't think there's a basis for a mental health hold. So obviously, the police officer was contacted as an independent authority of state law to do a mental health hold as well. She decides, well, the shrink, doesn't think it's necessary. There's no point in me doing it.
2: Are those all just missed signs that we wouldn't miss today? Do you think?
1: Well would they miss today? What? I...
2: <laughs>
1: yes. Come on, what Wait, finish that sentence? What were you gonna say? I mean would what... I, mean, I mean what honestly? what? the exact same scenario could occur again today? But listen, I I finished up my career five years in Miami Beach, and there is a very, very robust homeless community in Miami Beach because Tourists are very, very generous, homeless people in Miami Beach, and we probably did uh, mental health holds, I'm guessing we might have done five to 15 a week in Miami Beach. Holy cow. And we would take them for a psychiatric evaluation and they would be released immediately. So I don't have any great confidence that today would be any different.
2: So what would change that? What would change your beliefs in that, that we would do a better job? Is that action by the public and reporting, action by the police, action by the mental health money, you know, support financially f- to support departments and mental health agencies that are trying to deal with people like that? I think it's
1: more about the healthcare system. I think it's more about a more event space, more doctors, more of an earnestness around evaluating folks when they're sent into the system. System doesn't have the infrastructure to support the volume. And, of course, it's also all about the guns.
0: Dan, for the listeners, how did the verdict play out?
1: I'll tell you a little bit about the legal side of this. It's kind of complicated. The shooting occurs early on a Friday morning. We had a, I would describe it as a testy relationship with our district attorney. She was term limited. Shooting occurs in July. She's going to be replaced by a newly elected district attorney in January, okay. and she clearly was and legitimately concerned about pretrial publicity, but we knew her well enough that we knew that she was going to run into court on Monday morning and get a gag order, her, which would have gagged prosecution and defense in any public statements about the shooting. Now, when you're a police chief and you're dealing with something as absolutely horrific and traumatic to a community as this kind of event, You don't want to be gagged. There are, there are a number of messages that you want to put out to the community, including that government is large in charge and is, is going to get us through this crisis, mobilizing community support for victims, you know, explaining what has happened and reassuring the community that it's under control and that the danger is past. So we knew about midday on Friday. That on Monday morning, we weren't going to be able to talk about any details of the case. Now, I will also tell you that as a police chief, you are a, you are a forever advocate for your police department. And my cops did a hell of a job. So we had until Monday morning to put out whenever we were going to put out by way of what occurred in our response, et cetera, et cetera. And also whenever messaging that we thought we needed to go to the community about the event that Monday morning, the gang order came down. Okay. And that had a real impact on my cops. They were never ever able to tell the story of what they had done and what they have been through. And I think that had a real negative impact on them. They needed to be able to be interviewed. They needed to be able to speak to people, need to be able to tell the story because they were truly traumatized. You know, I used to say, you know, we're all victims. Uh, the entire community has been victimized. Every first responder is a victim, and it was very, very forced to not be able to tell the story. So our event occurs in July. The following April is the Boston Marathon it, Those guys, there was no gag order in that case, and the brother who survived was convicted right before we went to trial. So our trial occurs three years after the incident. Our trial occurs. In June or May and June of 15. Okay? And my cops for the first time are able to tell their story on the witness stand. So we go through the trial. The trial takes six or eight weeks. Many of my cops broke down in tears on the witness stand. It was such a, it was so, so traumatic to finally tell the story three years later. And what they had been through was so horrific. And of course, we have to disprove his defense beyond a reasonable doubt, which we successfully did. And he is convicted. And then we move to the sentencing phase. Now, interesting story about our suspect. The day of the shooting, he puts in the mail to his psychiatrist a 50-page manifesto. Hmm. We arrest him, and Sunday night, there's a phone call made to the University of Colorado for his defense attorney saying, my client has mailed something to his doctor, and he wants the package back, if you can imagine.
2: That happens a lot, and I'm so, sure. No way.
1: So the package arrives on Monday morning at the University of Colorado, and pursuant to instructions from the district attorney, we're very confident and eventually we're going to get to see it, but we expect motions from the defense. So we seal a thing up, okay, and we don't look at it. There's a year of litigation that eventually there's a ruling that it is evidence and it's made available to us. When it was made available to us, I took a look at it, and clearly he was disturbed. And the writings are bizarre. And when I took a look at that, my one reaction was, uh... And Sarah, I'm also an attorney. My one reaction was that um, it's going to be hard to convict him to to death. It's going to be hard to convince the jury. He's clearly a disturbed man. Yeah. And, you know, we can prove they know right for wrong. We can prove that he knew the consequences of his actions. So we should be able to convict him. But I think a jury is going to be hung up on whether or not His mind is so troubled that he shouldn't be put to death. And that's exactly what happened. I believe there was at least one pulled out juror who said, I just can't convict him. and Without a unanimous verdict for death, he got life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that was his final verdict. But the pressure on us, law enforcement, to deliver a conviction. And I'm so proud that we did, us collectively, our team, and that the district attorney. I mean, you get to know these families, you get to know these victims, and it's the one thing that you really, really want to deliver is a conviction, because that's what's within our control to do.
0: A story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. It's so hard to actually imagine being stuck on what I guess is a slight life hold, isn't it? Before you get any closure to a case. Like three years is such a long time for everybody involved. But for your police team... What does that look like in between in terms of support and counseling? Is that readily available and was it then?
1: We had top shelf. We were fortunate in that regard. There's a very well-known, very experienced at least psychologist and he had a team. His name is John Nicoletti and he made his name, you know, in his organization's name, Fallen One, which was 13 years earlier, and right down the street from Aurora. And he mobilized his team that night. And for the next month, all he did was, was help us, uh, the larger workforce of the entire city. And he was there for us and, you know, all throughout. There's a whole really sort of interesting, you know, as a police leader, how do you deal with this? Anyway, um, there were a handful of cops who resisted, but we eventually got through to them and broke them down and got them to go. Did have one of the superhero cops of that night did leave the organization on a psychological disability. He's the one. There was one little girl who died The theater shooting. She died in his arms. Yeah. He had been a first responder 13 years earlier, Columbine.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: As a young deputy sheriff. Mm. Uh, And uh, I saw him at the 10-year reunion. He's doing extremely well. You know, one of the ways our cops cope, sorry, I appreciate this, is every year at twelve thirty eight in the morning, the officers line up the patrol cars, families and folks stand outside the theater, and at twelve thirty in the morning, there's a parade of police cars with lights and sirens that go by, and they've done that every year for ten years.
0: Oh, it's amazing, it's actually. Bringing um, tears to my eyes, it just gives you a chill right down the
1: spine. And I did that this year at the ten-year liberation. It's it's very very powerful.
2: And were there things about the community that, that surprised you? I mean, did you, yeah. and the department, like get you know things sent to it, like cookies and teddy oh, bears? Yeah. And-
1: the entire community was so powerfully impacted. It's, Everybody knew someone who was in that theater. Literally, for the rest of my time there, a day or a week wouldn't go by where I would be speaking to someone who would say, my niece, my nephew, my brother was in the theater. You know, and then there were 1,200 people in the complex. Everyone was touched by it. And one of the things that happened is people just started sending us, the cops, and I'm sure firefighters too, stuff, food, whatever gift cards, you know, just pouring in. People wanted to do something. And at some point, I don't know, the second day or something, someone said, you know, we better keep track of who's giving us stuff. And a year later, we produced all these plaques. And there were two kinds of plaques. There were plaques that I created thanking police agencies for sending cops that night. And then plaques to, you know, food vendors and restaurants. And I spent two days driving around the community Handing out these flags and taking pictures, you know, at the one year anniversary saying, thank you for, you know, supporting us the way you did. We had somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 cops come from all over the region that night. One of the most powerful transmissions that night is you hear our radio folks calling for help. and. All the same agencies there responded to Columbine 13 years earlier. One by one, uh, they tick off, you know, we're coming. And when they came, we had some challenges. Uh, The geography of our event was we were at a theater, and right next to the theater was a one million square foot wall. Okay? Indoor mall and some doors were open. Literally, you could walk into the wall. And we were told that there was at least two gunmen. So we had one in custody. And then to the east was a huge open field. So we got one in custody with a rifle. And we believe there's another one. And we have 1,100 witnesses. So there's plenty of work for the cops to do to clear that mall, clear all the areas around, and cajole as many of, of these witnesses as possible to get on buses and go to the nearby high school, which became the reunification and investigation center, and cement to interviews. And so we use those 200 cops to do that stuff. And Sarah, one of the most powerful things I think your listeners appreciate this is you know you're a police chief and you're supposed to know what to do, and and I'm you know I'm doing a press conference in the parking lot, you know, and and now it's Four in the morning, and I'm done with the press. And I'm like, "What do I do next?" And the right thing to do was to go over to the high school and see how our folks were managing the investigation and talking to witnesses and check up on my cops. But I had this irrational thought that I had to find the officer or the child had died in his arms, and, and I was, "I have to find him. I have to talk to him. I have to give him a hug." Well, he was at high school, so I didn't go to the high school out of sort of a great wisdom as a police leader. I went to the high school to find Mike, and I go to the high school, and one of the most powerful memories I have, it's 4.30 in the morning. Okay, by the way, we locked down the parking lot, so anyone who drove to the theater couldn't get their car because we didn't know what we had, and we didn't know if a car was connected to the event. So these people couldn't go anywhere, and my cops in the middle of the night find a ton of buses, and they bus people go over to the high school. I mean, the cops are so resourceful. They opened up the high school. I don't know how they did that. So I get over to the high school and there's literally 50 to 80 Aurora citizens waiting on one to be interviewed before they go home, to do their civic duty, to be interviewed about what they've seen. And then dispersed across the entire ground floor of the high school are little desks Little student desks with an investigator and a witness, and the investigator is either one of my detectives, an FBI agent, or an ATF agent. And these folks had figured out on their own about we don't know what to do, and their wonderful leadership that we got to get statements from all these people, and let's just get it done. And there was an assembly line going on of investigators getting statements, and it was powerful. And, you know, I'll never forget it. And then, of course, later on that day, the worst 90 minutes of my life was about four in the afternoon. And we had 10 bodies in the theater because we still had a crime scene. And we had 10 families couldn't locate their loved ones. Okay. And all other wounded, etc., and two deceased at the hospitals. Those families had all been notified, connected, etc. And so, we met in the library of the high school with those 10 families, about 120 people. And it was me, it was Jimmy Cohn, the SAC for the FBI and the district attorney. And I opened up the meeting. I wasn't going to sugarcoat it by saying, almost certainly... Okay. We have 10 bodies in the theater. You represent 10 families who cannot locate your loved ones or most sure. certainly your loved one is deceased in the theater, but we can't confirm that until we complete crime scene. The one thing we can do for you folks is convict this guy who did this. And in order to do that, we have to properly handle this crime scene and. I'm terribly sorry to tell you this. And I'll never forget, I remember one father saying to me, you, you mean to tell me my little girl is lying dead in the theater and you will not let me get to her? Um, but on the whole, at least were are understanding very but It was uh, it was a awful 90-minute. Uh,
2: hey, Dan, how did you keep your composure? Like, Did you cry during that? I would have cried. I'm a crier.
1: I'm crying oh, I, now. I don't think I cried during that, but it was... It was all, it, it was, you know, you know, it's life-altering. One of the things, Sarah, is we as a community went through all of this. So this is July of 12. And as a community, this is a city of 400,000. feel like we're finally climbing out of it. It's December. It's early December. And Newtown happens. Yeah. Which, I mean, they're all awful. But there's something terribly, horrifically awful about Newtown. Yeah. And there was this sort of collected funk as a community yeah. that we went into because we so fresh for us and we knew exactly what was happening in Connecticut and there was nothing we could do to help that community. We actually tried to get through to authorities there and said, you know, we'll send Nicoletti and his team. Nicoletti said he would go our police psychologist. We'll send Carol O'Shea, who was our victim advocate leader and her team, we'll send these people to help, but we couldn't get through to a decision maker and, you know, I'm convinced that we should have a rapid mobilization of folks who have been through and we're working on that. We're trying to sell that to the law enforcement community so far. We're not getting traction.
2: That's a door Dan and I have both been knocking on for a while. Dan is the leader, I think, and no, there's plenty of no. people on that bus.
1: Yeah. And value, for instance, uh, having someone who's landed an investigation, you know, a detective or a detective sergeant who's been the case lead on one of these, show up within 48 hours and just sit sign by sign for a week with the case lead on the new one. I mean, that would be invaluable because it's so hard to manage one of these cases.
2: Hey Dan, did you uh, did you find Mike in the high school?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: What was he doing? Was he working or was he just sitting there? He was working. He was working.
1: They were managing the crowd control and, you know, directed people. And, of course, the other thing that was happening at the high school was families were showing them. You know, everyone who ran from the theater dropped their cell phone. One of the things my cops tell me, you know, they had to guard their bodies in theater and two images that stick with me was the incessant ringing of cell phones families trying to get to people that they couldn't reach and then footwear people literally you know it was a hot summer day and people literally took their sandals off you know and i relaxed to watch the movie and it was footwear all over the place in the theater but yeah so no it was plenty of work to do um there's all kinds of complications you don't think of you realize As soon as it's over and the crisis is over, now it's all about the victims and the families. You know things like we got to get families here, we got to go pick them up the airport, we got to help with air travel. You name it. You know one of the things we did, which was really really smart, is we reached out to all the public information officers in the region from various law enforcement agencies, and we assigned a public information officer to each of the families of the deceased. And we told the media, do not call the families anymore. If you want information, families, you go through the PIO. We took a tremendous burden off the families. Them, we could choose to talk to the media or not to talk. The PIOs would stage it, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a tremendous relief to the families not to have to deal with the media and it worked. And the media respected that process. You know, those are things we did on the fly and now there's sort of model Actual- you know,
2: Dan, I hear a lot of times when I talk to people, a lot of deflective criticism. When I talk about, it's important to train for run, hide, fight, or it's important to train for stop the bleed. It's important for law enforcement to get their training in active shooters. I hear, why aren't you spending more money and time focused on prevention?
1: Well, we're back to the conversation we started. What, what's the definition of prevention? How do you prevent our person? where someone similarly situated from doing this again. Okay? Our mental health system doesn't support... You know, I've described that every pop in America knows you take someone in on a mental health, health hold. Almost all the time, we're released in two to four hours. We had an incident, Sarah, you would appreciate this. I think this occurred after our shooting. We had an incident in Aurora where someone who was currently mentally deranged, a male... A family has their garage door open, which we've see seen over the open of neighborhoods. Where someone has a garage door open and a guy goes completely naked, goes into the open garage door and starts trashing the garage of a family. Okay. Cops are called. Cops apprehend him. All right. He's obviously in the middle of some kind of psychotic crisis, but he's also committed a burglary and damaged property. So the cops have two choices arrest him for the burglary or treat him as a mentally deranged person, take him to the highest hospital for a psychological evaluation. The cops choose the latter, the compassionate choice, okay? The guy is released within, I don't know how many days or hours or whatever, but he's evaluated and released. He goes down to Butlow County to the south and murders two people. No. I did so not think that's where this story was going bag, then. Low bag comes to Aurora. Why didn't you arrest him? The burglary? He have committed the murder. Okay. So, it was it really a failure of the Aurora police? They made the compassionate choice between those two options. But until we saw this issue of mental health and the lack of support here for mental health, combined with the explosive, or in the pun, trigger of accessibility to weapons in America. You know, I, I don't know what we do, so.
2: We keep training our law enforcement. We keep training our civilians to do a better job when tragedy strikes. Well, I know that we've taken up a lot of your time, Dan.
0: I've got one more question that I'm going to sneak in. I want to ask you, I mean, you have had such a long career. What do you think you're the proudest of out
1: of those years that you've served? Easily, the my career, the thing I'm most proud of is how well my cops and my agency responded. On July 20th, 2012, and in the many months in the aftermath, including getting conviction.